welcome back to Kind of Cute. And if you're new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Evan. I'm your host. And on Kind of Cute, we discuss articles from the cut and my general pop culture musings. Y'all, I just recorded like my whole intro and I was talking about how happy I was that Mercury in retrograde ended on Sunday uh, and then realized that my mic wasn't working. So maybe we are still feeling the effects of Mercury in retrograde a little bit. Um, again, I'm sorry I missed an episode last week. Hurricane Ian kind of messed up my plans. My power kept flickering. But I mean, obviously, I cannot complain. We were very much spared here in West Palm. But I just didn't feel like in the cheery mood to do it. And honestly, the wind outside was really loud on like Tuesday and Wednesday. But again, I'm my heart goes out to everyone in like the Fort Myers area. And I feel so lucky that, you know, it, my house was spared it. But as someone who's been through hurricanes and felt the effects of hurricanes, but never even on the level that Hurricane Ian did. I just can't even imagine what everyone over there is going through. So again, my heart goes out to everyone over there. And much lighter and happier news, this past weekend, I bought a Costco membership for the first time. Up until now, I've always gone to Sam's and Costco with my parents. And I was like, you know what? It's time because I want to be able to buy all the boba bars that my little heart desires. If you haven't had the ice cream boba bars, go get yourself some. (laughs) They are incredible. But yeah, honestly, up until this time with my Costco membership, I feel like the only other time I felt like somewhat of a semblance of an adult is when I would go to Home Depot, which sadly being a homeowner, I have to do a lot. But that's the one time I'm like, oh shit, like I'm not 25 anymore. I think a perfect example of why I still feel, you know, perpetually 25 at heart is I saw a TikTok with this girl saying she's made money by putting cinnamon on a quarter. And my immediate thought was, I must do that. (laughs) So she says she does this every, you know, when the month is turning. So this month, September 30th, going into October 1st, she says that you sprinkle some cinnamon on a quarter and you put it outside and you sprinkle a little bit more cinnamon on it. And then you bring the quarter in and you say this little incantation. Or I think calling it a manifestation is more fitting. It's not really a spell or anything. It's just like, I I welcome wealth and love and happiness into my life, whatever. Uh, And then you put the quarter back outside and you leave it there overnight. So I was like, I'm going to try this. And I only have pumpkin pie spice. So we're going to use that because, I mean, it definitely has cinnamon in it. And it seems fitting for the season. And um, I will let you guys know if it brings me wealth, health, love, happiness. Um, I'm really hoping it does. (laughs) I think the best news of this past week was that Rihanna's hosting the Super Bowl. I cannot wait. I think that's going to be the best show we've seen in many years. She knows how to put on a performance. A lot of people are speculating as to whether that means she's actually finally coming out with a CD because if you follow Rihanna at all, you know it's been so long. I'm also sorry I always switch between Rihanna and Rihanna. Rihanna, I feel like, is how most people say it, but Rihanna herself has said that it's pronounced Rihanna, so I apologize for that. Um, I just, again, I'm very excited. I think everyone is excited about that particular performance happening. Since I last spoke to you, I've seen a few movies. So I saw Bros, which is Billy Eichner's gay rom-com, and I went for free, but this is not biased because of that. I thought it was so heartwarming, so adorable. I laughed out loud multiple times. And I just want to tell you guys to go see it because I know Billy Eichner has been in the press saying things about how he just thinks that the reason it's not doing fantastically in the box office is because like the straight people aren't going out to see it. And I don't know how true that is. I mean, it, it literally could just be that maybe they didn't do enough marketing for it or 
you know, obviously don't worry darlings out at the same time. So a lot of their crowd might be going to see that instead. I think people overall are going to the movies less these days. People just want to be able to stream things. And I do think this had kind of a similar feeling to the the Fire Island movie, which is also a gay rom-com. Um, and not that I'm grouping them together just because of that, but they literally just had a similar feel like Bo and Yang was in both of them. You know, they're very comedic. But yeah, I just want to say it is such a cute rom-com. Like if you are looking for one to watch, like if that's what you want, if you're not into like the spooky season movies and you just want something really cute and you're going to leave the movie being like, that was so adorable, I recommend to go see Bros. Okay, and we mentioned Don't Worry Darling. So obviously I have to talk about that just because I feel like there's been so much buildup going into it. And I have to say, just to start out, that overall, I found the experience enjoyable. It's a fairly long movie, and I felt like the time passed very quickly. And to me, that's very important when you're going to see a long movie, because a lot of times they can start to drag. I start to feel tired. I start to want to check my phone. You know, all of that. I didn't experience that with Don't Worry Darling. Um, I do have a few critiques of it. Maybe skip forward a little bit. I'm trying to keep this spoiler light, but if you literally don't want to hear anything about this movie, then skip forward a minute or two. Um, I also have to say that the writer of it, Katie Silverman, I went to school with her and not that I have any allegiance to her. She doesn't know who the hell I am, but I do, you know, I want her to succeed. I think it's cool that she was at school at the same time as me and is doing all this stuff with Olivia Wilde. She wrote uh, Booksmart, which is the other, you know, Olivia Wilde's directorial debut, if you will. And then she also wrote The Setup, which I thought was really cute. I'm sorry, I think I did mention this when I was talking about Don't Worry Darling before. But again, I want her to do well, but I feel like a lot of the issues people have had with this are the writing. It's also worth noting that originally this was written by um, Dick Van Dyke's grandchildren, I believe. Um, I think they're they're either brothers or twins, the Van Dykes. They wrote the initial script for this, and then Katie Silverman kind of came in and did her edits on it, and then also had input from Olivia Wilde. And because of that, I think people thought it was going to have way more of this kind of feminist twist to it, and I think that was largely driven by the press leading up to it. Olivia was really touting it as this like about female pleasure, about female empowerment. And I thought the movie as a whole was lacking in that thematically. Once you see it and you see the twist, you realize how little autonomy these women have throughout the whole film. And even when you're seeing before the twist, these women interact, a lot of them feel kind of like cardboard cutouts. The only one who feels really dynamic and like a full character is Florence Pugh's character which by the way she did an incredible job I think it's hard whenever people are in a movie with Florence Pugh especially when she's really in this caring role to kind of stand up to her acting because at least for me I think she's one of the best young actors of our time so I felt bad for Harry because I think that it was a lot for him and his really first kind of co-lead role I mean it was still a supporting role but you know much bigger than what he had in Dunkirk Um, I think it was a lot for him to take on and I think he held his own and I definitely think in moments of levity and when he's being very charming, he plays those parts really well or where he's really kind of like acting, 
you know, out like acting loudly. I think he can do those okay. But it's sort of like in the more quiet, dramatic moments that I felt like he struggled a little bit. And I think that's kind of mirrored by the reviews for this. Some people are saying he's just like shit, but I don't think he was shit at all. I, I thought he held his own. Again, it's just hard for anyone to hold their own, especially when you also have Chris Pine, who I thought was very underutilized. And I thought he did incredible. I would have liked to see more of him. I would have liked to see more of Jim and Chan's character. She plays Chris Pine's character's wife. And then I would have also liked to see more of Kiki Lane's character, Margaret. And that's another point I want to talk about because after the film came out, uh, Margaret announced that she's like a lot of my parts got cut and she kind of did this cheeky Instagram, but she's like, whatever, I found my man because she's dating the man who played her husband in the movie in real life. And both of their parts apparently got significantly cut down. And once you've seen the movie, you realize that seems quite egregious because not only is Margaret's character the only black character in the film, she sort of acts as this foil to Florence Pugh's character to kind of drive her her plot forward, right? And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the term fridging, but that comes from the Green Lantern co- uh, comics. When it's this idea of, you know literally killing off or doing something terrible to a female character right at the beginning to move forward the male protagonist's storyline. And in that situation, she was found dead in a fridge and that's why it's called fridging. And I felt like they really did that to Margaret's character in this. And her character seemed really crucial to the plot line, yet didn't have a lot of screen time. And I think it was interesting to me that why are you taking the one black character and everyone's acting like she's crazy she's clearly not crazy but all the other characters are acting like that and just sort of relegating her to that role to just move everyone's plot forward I just thought it was um, a bizarre choice to make because I just wonder if there were any people of color who were giving input on the script because I think they might have been like Eh, maybe let's not do that. And obviously, like, I'm a white woman. Who am I to talk? And I'm, I misspeak on here all the time. And But I'm also not a multi-million dollar movie, right? With this whole network behind me. So I just, I don't know. I thought that was just like a weird choice. When you also learn about the twist in this movie, you also realize that these sex scenes are very much not consensual. And I, again, I didn't even feel like they were that, much through the female gaze. They were both shown in the uh, the trailers. There's one where Florence's character has spent all day making this elaborate meal. It's like this roast meal, worked on it all day. Harry comes home, pushes it all off the table. It falls on the floor to ha- for you know them to have their sex scene. And all I could think about was how pissed I would be if my perfectly made roast got thrown to the side like that my perfect potatoes on the ground I'm sorry absolutely not no anyways people could do whole dissertations about the don't worry darling plot but like I said I did find it plot holes and all to be an enjoyable ride we're seeing just to be kind of part of like (laughs) the zeitgeist of everyone talking about it I recommend seeing it or waiting till it comes on streaming and seeing it that way Okay, also an exciting news. Emma Chamberlain's AD House Tour came out this past week. And oh my God, it's it's become my new favorite. I know I say that so often where I'm like, this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite. Emma's is incredible. It is the most stunning, beautiful decor. It's by this company called Prom. It's spelled P R 
OEM is who her designers worked for. And I'm like, please, I need to put that on every manifestation board I ever come in contact with that I can work with these women someday because I just really felt like they understood Emma's vision. They incorporated their own thoughts. They did such cool, unique things. I Every time I talk about these 80 house tours, I talk about how I just want the house to be imbued with the personality of the person whose house it is. And if it lacks that, even if it is so beautiful, it lacks something to me. And hers just had everything. It had this gorgeous like sage green kitchen. It had this chandelier that's, I mean, I want to say it's like $53,000 so cool like chain link glass with these big orbs hanging from it she has a lot of things that she bought from etsy including these russian dolls and one of them was like abba like the nesting russian dolls just like these little pieces that i loved so much so really this is just me telling you to go watch that i'm sorry the whole beginning has just me been telling you to go watch things but I need you to watch this. I need you to tell me how good it is and that you agree with me because, or if you don't agree, because I'd also love to hear that because to me, I felt like it was very, um, it was like very people pleasing. I think a lot of people who would see it be like, oh, it just looks so warm and inviting and like the type of place you want to go hang out with your friends. And the fact that she's 21 years old and has achieved all of this. And she really, I know it's so cliche to say someone seems beyond their years, but she really always has this innate maturity about her while talking about the most immature stuff. Like she really does seem to get it in a way that a lot of social media influencers, I think could take a page out of her book. She's just doing things in a way that is really admirable, at least from my position. Yeah, I don't know if it's something in the water or if it's just the remnants of Mercury and retrograde, but there's been so many celebrity divorces announced lately. Um, Kenan Thompson and his wife, uh, Tia Mowry and her husband of 14 years, rumors that Giselle and Tom Brady are getting a divorce. And then we had all these more details about the 2016 airplane fight between Brad Pitt and Angelina come out that prompted their divorce. There was a new court filing that is so awful, like allegedly that uh, Brad poured drinks on them, choked them, pushed them. There was crying. I mean, damn, like I think we all just really want these successful beautiful celebrity marriages because you hear this stuff and it's just sad you're like damn if these rich beautiful people can't make it work who can and obviously I think that's part of the problem is that they are rich and beautiful but um I don't know the Tia one got me because again she's just 14 years is a long time in Hollywood Okay, we're going to aggressively pivot right now, and we're doing something a little special today. I figured since it's spooky season, Netflix is coming out with a series called The Watcher, and it's based on this November 2018 article from The Cut. So I thought it would be fun today to go in-depth into this article. Again, if you don't want that TV series spoiled, I guess don't listen to this, which is going to be the majority of the podcast, but we don't actually know um, you know, what direction the TV show is going to take. I think it's kind of fictionalized based on this true life article. So I think it would be kind of fun to listen to this and compare if you want to watch that. It's going to have um, Naomi Watts as the main leading wife in it. And again, I just thought this story was so creepy and interesting and well-written. And I just thought it'd be a little fun to get us all in that spirit. So here you go. Here's your first article of the day. Okay, so the title of this article is The Watcher. And it's by Reeves Wiedemann. 
So let me introduce you to our main characters, Derek Broadus and Maria Broadus. They are a married couple, and they had just bought their dream house, the six-bedroom house at 657 Boulevard in Westfield, New Jersey. They were ecstatic. They had just closed on this house, and they were doing some renovations before they moved in. When Derek goes to the mailbox, and he finds this white card-shaped envelope, it had thick, clunky handwriting, and it was addressed to the new owner. And it said, Dearest new neighbor at 657 Boulevard, allow me to welcome you to the neighborhood. Sounds nice enough, right? Derek was like, oh, how nice. They're welcoming us to the neighborhood. Again, this was just the American dream for this family. They had bought this $1.3 million house. Derek had grown up working class, and just after his 40th birthday, he was able to afford this beautiful place. And to make it even cuter, his wife had grown up in this area, so it was so nice that she was able to come back and live just a few blocks away from her childhood home. But as he read on, this letter took a turn. It said, 657 Boulevard has been the subject of my family for decades now, and as it approaches its 110th birthday, I've been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. My grandfather watched the house in the 1920s, and my father watched in the 1960s. It's now my time. Do you know the history of the house? Do you know what lies within the walls of 657 Boulevard? Why are you here? I will find out. I see already that you have flooded 657 Boulevard with contractors so that you can destroy the house as it was supposed to be. Tsk, tsk, tsk. Bad move. You don't want to make 657 Boulevard unhappy. You have children. I have seen them. So far, I think that there are three that I have counted. Maybe there's more on the way. Do you need to fill the house with the young blood I requested? Better for me. Was your old house too small for the growing family? Or was it greed to bring me your children? Once I know their names, I will call to them and draw them to me. Who am I? There are hundreds and hundreds of cars that drive by 657 Boulevard each day. Maybe I am in one. Look at all the windows you can see from 657 Boulevard. Maybe I am in one. Look at any of the many windows in 657 Boulevard at all the people who stroll by each day. Maybe I am one. Welcome, my friends. Welcome. Let the party begin. And then, in a signature typed in cursive font, it was signed, The Watcher. So Derek, rightfully so, is freaked the hell out. It's 10 o'clock at this point, so he's going all around the house, turning off the lights. He calls the police department. The officer comes to the house and he says, what the fuck is this? So he asks Derek, he's like, do you have any enemies? Um, you know, what is going on? So Derek goes back to Maria and his kids that are still at the other house while they're working on this new one at 657. And... They wrote an email together to the old owners of the house, John and Andrea Woods, and they asked them if they have any idea who this could be or why he would write, I asked the Woods to bring me young blood, and it looks like they listened. So Andrea Woods replied the next morning, and she says that a few days before they moved out, they had also received a letter from the watcher, and they said the note had been odd. Uh, but they had never received anything like it in their 23 years living at the house, so they just threw the letter away without much thought. So that day, the Woods and the Broadduses went to the police together, and they brought the letter, and the detectives were basically like, you cannot talk to your neighbors about this because literally all of your neighbors are now suspects. So of course, after this, 
Derek and Maria, they are on high alert, right? They're just freaked out every time they come to the house. And then two weeks later, Maria stops by. She's just, you know, getting some paint samples, checking the mail. And uh uh-oh, she recognizes that thick black lettering on the card-shaped envelope. And she called the police right away. And this time the letter said, Welcome again to your new home at 657 Boulevard. The workers have been busy and I've been watching you unload carfuls of your personal belongings. The dumpster's a nice touch. Have they found what's in the walls yet? In time, they will. Remember, last time it had been addressed to the new owners, but this time it was addressed to Mr. and Mrs. Braddis, which is not quite their name, but clearly it seems like the watcher had been close enough to hear what their name was. The letter also says, I'm pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. You certainly say their names often. And then it talked about one child who I guess the watcher had seen using an easel inside of uh, the porch. It said, is she an artist in the family? 657 Boulevard is anxious for you to move in. It's been years and years since the young blood ruled the hallways of the house. Have you found all of the secrets it holds yet? Will the young blood play in the basement? Or are they too afraid to go down there alone? I would be very afraid if I were them. It's far away from the rest of the house. If you were upstairs, you would never hear them scream. Will they sleep in the attic? Or will you all sleep on the second floor? Who has the bedrooms facing the street? I'll know as soon as you move in. It'll help me to know who is in which bedroom. Then I can plan better. All of the windows and doors in 657 Boulevard allow me to watch you and track you as you move through the house. Who am I? I am the watcher, and I've been in control of 657 Boulevard for the better part of two decades now. The Woods family turned it over to you. It was their time to move on and kindly sold it when I asked them to. I pass by many times a day. 657 Boulevard is my job, my life, my obsession. And now you are too, Braddis family. Welcome to the product of your greed. Greed is what brought the past three families to 657 Boulevard, and now it has brought you to me. Have a happy moving in day. You know I will be watching. Now, I have to pause at this point to remind you guys that this is a real-life story. Like, this is not a horror movie plot. This actually happened to this poor family. Just keep that in mind. So, obviously, at this point, Derek and Maria are even freaked to bring their kids to the house. They don't even know if they want to move in at this point. And then a third letter arrives several weeks later. It says, where have you gone to? 657 Boulevard's missing you. Now, I also want you to keep in mind that this area is very well off. People describe it as similar to the setting of the Andy Griffith show, the town Mayberry. Like, not something or a place where a lot of creepy things were happening. The Broadduses start this long process of kind of trying to figure out who is sending the letters. Now, they noticed that the letters were processed in the town Kearney, which is a distribution center in northern New Jersey. And oddly, the first letter was postmarked June 4th, which was before the sale of the house was even public. The Woodses who sold this to the Broadduses, they didn't even ever put up a for sale sign. And the letter arrived only a day after the contractors arrived. So the watcher was clearly very on top of this. Like, he wrote this letter up real quick and he got it sent. (laughs) Another point was that the easel that the watcher had noticed, it was really hard to see because it was covered by vegetation unless someone was, like, directly behind the house or right next door. So the Broadduses go to this barbecue that the neighborhood's putting on, and honestly, they're hoping to get a little bit of information about who might be responsible for this. So at one point, they're talking to one of their neighbors, and he tells them about the Langfords. Now, the Langfords 
are this family and they're a little kooky. Peggy Langford is the matriarch. She's in her 90s and several of her adult children who are in their 60s lived with her. And the neighbor was like, you know, the family's a little bit odd, but I think they're pretty harmless. Uh, one of the young younger Langfords was called Michael, and he described him as a kind of Boo Radley character. So Derek was like, oh, the case is solved. It's definitely got to be the Langfords. I mean, they're right next to where the easel is. They've been living here since the 60s. So obviously, you know, this family could have watched this property for a long time. And the Richard Langford, who was the patriarch, had died 12 years earlier. And that lined up with the statement that the letter said that the watcher had been watching for the better part of two decades. So the police questioned Michael Langford. They brought him to headquarters and everything, but he denied knowing anything about the letters. And the police were kind of like, well, you know, if no one admits to doing this, there's really not much we can do. And Derek's pissed. He's like, this is someone who threatened my kids. And the police are saying probably nothing's going to happen. Probably is not good enough for me, Derek says. And he's like, this person attacked my family. And where I'm from, if you do that, you get your ass beat. So Derek's like, you know what? I'm taking this into my own hands. So he sets up webcams. He would crouch in the dark. He would watch out the windows to see if anyone was watching him at close range. And then when he met with the author of this article, he came when he had like all of these copies of letters, like documents covering the whole table, showing all of the research and the maps he did where he would kind of plot out who could possibly be looking in his backyard or who would be an earshot and realized like there was only a few homes that actually fit that criteria. And the Broadduses went so far as to employ private investigators. They would stake out the neighborhood. They ran background checks on the Langfords, but they couldn't really find anything. I thought this part was really interesting. Derek actually reached out to a former FBI agent who was the inspiration for Clarice Starling in The Silence of the Lambs. Funny enough, they were on a high school board of trustees together. They hired another former FBI agent to conduct a threat assessment. And one of the clues they were able to get from the letters is that it was addressed addressed M M Braddis, which is like a very old-fashioned salutation. It would also always mention the day's weather, like it's warm and humid and sunny and cool. So they kind of had deduced that this has to be someone older who would even know to write like this. And honestly, I was looking up the salutation mm i think it means married man but it was so hard to even find on the internet what it meant that i'm like you know honestly if this was like a teenager trying to pretend to do this it would be kind of difficult to accurately write in this fashion this very kind of old-timey fashion and they agreed they're like you know it had a certain literary panache they thought this person was maybe a voracious reader there was a lack of profanity even though the watcher seemed very angry like here's another excerpt from one of the letters the house is crying from all the pain it's going through. You have changed it and made it so fancy. You are stealing its history. It cries for the past and what used to be in the time when I roamed its halls. The 1960s were a good time for 657 Boulevard when I ran from room to room imagining life with the rich occupants there. The house was full of life and young blood. Then it got old and so did my father. But he kept watching until the day he died. And now I watch and wait for the day when the young blood will be mine again. Now, I thought this was actually a pretty smart tactic. They kind of were hung up that the Langfords were involved in this. So the Broadduses sent a letter to the Langfords, just them, announcing plans to tear down the house. And they were hoping that this would prompt a response or a letter and kind of confirm that it was them who were, who were doing it. But nothing happened. And then the detectives brought in Michael for a second interview. They brought in his sister, Abby. And Abby was like, no, you're the police are harassing our family. And then the Broadduses actually hired a lawyer 
and he met with the Langfords as well, but that meeting got very tense and the Langfords basically just maintained their innocence. Now, these were some other people that the, you know, investigators were a little suspicious of. For example, there was two child sex offenders within a few blocks of this happening. And obviously with all the stuff about young blood, that kind of sent off an alarm bell. And then a painter who was working on the house noticed that the people directly behind the Broadduses had their chairs really close to their fence. And instead of facing in towards their house, it was facing towards the Broadduses house, which to me, I'm like, that is very suspicious. But the investigation really didn't go anywhere because there was no digital trail, there was no fingerprints, there was really just no way to set anyone at the scene of the crime. So the Broadduses were getting really fed up at this point. They're even to the point where they're hiring a priest to come bless their house. Now we have this other excerpt from one of the letters. 657 Boulevard is turning on me. It's coming after me. I don't understand why. What spell did you cast on it? It used to be my friend and now it's my enemy. I'm in charge of 657 Boulevard. It's not in charge of me. I will fend off its bad things and wait for it to become good again. I will not punish me. I will rise again. I will be patient and wait for this to pass and for you to bring the young blood to me. 657 Boulevard needs young blood. It needs you. Come back. Let the young blood play again like I once did. Let the young blood sleep in 657 Boulevard. Stop changing it and let it alone. At this point, the Broadduses have sold their old house. They're living with Maria's parents. There's a lot of kind of tension between Maria and Derek, like, you know, they started to wonder if they're going to need to get a divorce because they're just so stressed from all of this. Maria's breaking down crying. She goes to a therapist and is immediately crying. And the therapist's like, I think you're suffering from post-traumatic stress. So six months after the Broadduses bought the property, they're like, we have to get rid of this. Like, we're not even living in it. We just want to get rid of it. And when they tried to sell it, like no one wanted to buy this because there were so many rumors flying around and people were thinking it was like sexual predators, stalkers. They didn't know exactly what it was because the Broadduses had never told anyone exactly what was in the letters. And the Broadduses were really adamant that they wanted to tell who was ever buying this house about the letters because they just felt like they deserved to know. They even filed a complaint against the Woods being like, you should have disclosed the letter that you guys got because maybe we wouldn't have bought it if we had known about that. Ooh, but it turns out this was not a great idea because, you know, obviously complaints are public documents and the Today Show picked up on this story. Then it went kind of viral. At one point, the Broadduses had more than 300 media requests and they basically ran away just to like escape the attention. So at this point, they had to tell their young kids, which they had really not wanted to do. And now it became the sort of internet mystery to solve. You know, Reddit was going crazy. People were talking about like, why don't we do, you know, some sort of radar to find out what's in the walls, if there's anything there. People were obsessing over like the Google Maps street view. Some people started to be convinced this was like marketing for a horror movie or that the Broadduses were doing it themselves because they wanted out of this big, you know, financial commitment they had from buying this old house. And some of the neighbors were supportive of the Broadduses and they're like, oh my gosh, how did you not like talk to all of the neighbors in the neighborhood? Like you didn't do a thorough investigation. And some people really thought the Broadduses were victims, but others really turned on them and were just convinced it was all a hoax and like just wanted them out of the town and just thought they were scammers basically. Now at this point in the story, we learned that Michael Langford had been diagnosed with schizophrenia as a young man. So again, people are pretty convinced like as unfair as that may be, that this has to be Michael Langford. But the twist is that the DNA on the envelopes belonged to a woman. So then they started looking more closely at Abby Langford. She was a real estate agent. Um, they did a DNA sample. It wasn't a match. 
And the police were like, you know what? We've ruled out the Langfords as suspects. They didn't really go into why, but they're just like, they're ruled out. And the Broadduses were stunned. They're like, are you kidding me? Like, we were so convinced it has to be them. So the Broadduses go back to the drawing board and they're like, okay, I guess we just have to take this into our own hands again. They continue to hire really renowned people. For example, they hired Robert Leonard, who is a renowned forensic linguist. And then he was also a former member of the band Shanana. And they hired... Um, a security firm because one of their neighbors was the CEO of a security firm. They had that all implemented in their house. They even wanted hackers to hack into their neighbor's computers to see if there was anything that would give any clues. But obviously that was illegal. So they're like, okay, maybe not. And if this wasn't weird enough, apparently around the same time that the Broadduses got their first letter, another family on the same boulevard got a similar note from the watcher. And the parents um, at that house, they had lived there for years. Their kids were fully grown. So they just threw the letter away like the Woodses did. And they didn't really think anything of it. But when the news broke, one of the children posted about the letter on Facebook, but then deleted it. And, you know, the police confirmed that it was a similar letter. So clearly it was from the same person. And then one day when the cops are staking out the place, they trace a car that's in the neighborhood back to a young woman in a nearby town whose boyfriend lived on the same block as 657. And the woman told the cops that her boyfriend was into, quote, some really dark video games. And one of the games had a specific character called the Watcher. So they're like, huh, maybe it has female DNA because maybe the girlfriend was helping deliver the letter. But that sort of died down as a theory too. Like the whole investigation sort of died down. And meanwhile, the Brasses still really want to sell the house. And as I mentioned earlier, some of the neighbors were very against the Broadduses. And as time went on, really most of them kind of turned against them. To the point when the Broadduses just realized their only way out was to sell the land to a developer. And they went to like a town meeting to get approval from the rest of their neighbors. And it was very clear at that point that no one was on their side. They wouldn't allow this to happen. Even though like a couple months later, they let an even more kind of egregious development happen right nearby so literally the broadest is only option at this point because at, at this point they're like no way are we staying in this creepy ass house so they rented it out you know it wasn't even covering their mortgage but they're like it's the best we can do and so these people start renting the house and Derek comes to the house one day to check on it and the renter hands him an envelope and it says violet winds and bitter cold to the violent spiteful Derek and his winch of a wife maria now, at this point, two and a half years have passed since the Watcher first sent the letter. And at no time during this have the Broadduses been able to, like, actually live in the house. So it goes on to say, you wonder who the Watcher is? Turn around, idiots. Maybe you even spoke to me. One of the so-called neighbors has no idea who the Watcher could be. Or maybe you do know and are too scared to tell anyone. Good move. I walked by the news trucks when they took over my neighborhood and mocked me. I watched as you watched from the dark house in an attempt to find me. Telescopes and binoculars are wonderful inventions. 657 Boulevard survived your attempted assault and stood strong with its army of supporters barricading its gates. My soldiers of the boulevard followed my orders to a T. They carried out their mission and saved the soul of 657 Boulevard with my orders. All hail the Watcher. And then the letter was like, oh, I'm going to get my revenge on you. And it listed out the forms that it could do it. It says, maybe a car accident, maybe a fire, maybe something as simple as a mild illness that never seems to go away, but makes you fall sick day after day after day after day. Maybe the mysterious death of a pet. Loved ones suddenly die. Planes and cars and bicycles crash. Bones break. So as of the time of this article, the Broadduses were still just renting out their house. 
And around Christmas Eve the year before, several families in the neighborhood received an envelope in their mailbox. And they were delivered by hand to the homes of people who had been the most vocal in criticizing the Broadduses online. People who got the letter described it as weirdly poetic, just like the Watchers had been, and it accused the families of speculating inaccurately about the Broadduses. It included several stories about recent acts of domestic terrorism in which signs of brewing mental illness had gone unnoticed. And then the typed letters were signed, Friends of the Broaddus Family. So the author of the article is like, Derek, did you write these letters? As in the ones that were sent to the neighbors, not the watcher letters. And he admitted that he did. And he wasn't proud of it. He hadn't even told Maria, his wife. And he said they were the only anonymous letters he'd ever written. But he really felt like at his wit's end. And he was fed up with people throwing accusations at his family based on nothing. And this line really got me. It says, The Watcher had been obsessed with 657 Boulevard, and Derek in turn had become obsessed with The Watcher and everything the letters had set in motion. It's like cancer, he told me. We think about it every day. And while the author's at this meeting with Derek, he hands her his phone and he shows her the last letter and it says, you are despised by this house and the watcher won. I'm sorry, guys. Is that some wild shit or is that some wild shit? Like, and I'm sorry that there is no conclusion to the story. As far as I know to this day, we do not know who the watcher is. I mean, if I had to guess, my bets are on the Langfords or the couple whose chairs faced towards uh, the Broaddus's house. That's really sus to me. And the fact that those people weren't investigated further. Also, the boyfriend who played the video game with a character called The Watcher. I still stand by. I think this was written by someone older. But the fact that it seems like they barely even looked into that person... I just don't get it. And a lot of people who are listening to this might be like, it was just letters, like there was nothing coming of it. But these were really scary threats, like coming for the young blood. I mean, I'd be terrified of that too, honestly. So I guess what I want to post to you guys is like, what would you do? What would you do in this situation? Would you just stay in the house and ignore the letters? Who do you think did it? And again, I'm, I'm fascinated to see how the Netflix show handles this if I end up watching it because... I just wonder if it's going to give a little bit more of a satisfactory conclusion, satisfactory conclusion or if it's just going to stay completely in line with what actually happened. Oh, I just thought this was so wild. So I hope you guys are okay that we did something a little different this week. And I just, again, I thought it'd be like a fun little spooky mystery to discuss. And of course, um, the original article by The Cut is linked in the show notes. So in an abrupt uh, transition that I have no transition for, let's talk about our blind item of the day. As usual, our blind items come from crazy days and nights. Take them with a grain of salt. They are not fact or journalism. They are blind items. I thought we had to do one about Florence Pugh. You know, it felt fitting. This is a rather recent one. It's from August 10th, 2022. And it says this a-list actress and this former late-night actor not named Pete Davidson have become very close since the actress took his side in a battle between exes. And this is about, of course, Florence Pugh and Jason Sudeikis. So, aka Florence Pugh and Jason Sudeikis have become very close since Florence took Jason's side in a battle between exes. Obviously, Jason and Olivia were together for years. Florence dated Zach Braff, who was friends with Jason Sudeikis. And I think if we want to believe anything in the press, it seems like um, Florence probably did side with Jason in all of this. Uh, you know, I don't, again, who knows? But as far as blind items go, I think this one makes a lot of sense. I think I've talked about this even on here before, how it was kind of complicated, this relationship Um between Florence and Zach and Jason and how she might have been more likely to side with them over Olivia just because of like I think she still has a soft spot for Zach and they dated for so long and there was other blind items around the same time 
or maybe a little earlier that ba- or I guess when they were still dating that basically Zach had like said some not great things about Olivia so I'm not sure how fond of uh, Olivia Zach is at this point anyways it's all just gossip it's all just rumors but as you know the don't worry darling kind of comes to this chapter closing I felt like we had to give it one last blind item so we've made it to our legit shit of the day Okay, this is an item Kinsey gave to me a while ago, and I've never talked about it. It's a little teacup from the site Poppy Angeloff. It'll be posted in the show notes. They have lots of little different dogs. There's cats. They're so adorable if you're in the market for just a little whimsical gift. Um, They're just so adorable. So check out her site. 